welcome heroes and advocates to another episode of Critical Conversations by Mind the Frontline, the vodcast that stands at the forefront of first responder mental health, wellness, and recovery. I'm your host, Chris Matana, a former firefighter and flight paramedic and the president of Mind the Frontline, and I'm thrilled to have you join us today on today's exploration of the crucial facets of first responder well-being. We have an incredible episode lined up for you all uh, with a special guest who brings unparalleled expertise to this discussion on trauma response and PTSD mitigation uh, with Tanya Glenn. It's a conversation you won't want to miss. The Critical Conversations podcast is a dedicated space for police, fire, EMS, allied health workers, dispatchers, air medical, military personnel, and their families. Here we delve into the heart of the matter, tackling essential topics such as mental health strategies, recovery methods, treatment options, the latest research, and professional development opportunities. At Mind the Frontline, we are more than a vodcast. We are a community committed to the fostering resilience within the entire first responder family. So whether you're on the front lines or supporting those who are, we invite you to subscribe, engage, and be a part of this vital mission. To learn more, please visit mindthefrontline.org. Now let's dive into today's critical conversation. Thank you for being here on Critical Conversations by Mind the Frontline. We do have a show disclaimer. Before we dive into today's episode of Critical Conversations by Mind the Frontline, we want to acknowledge the nature of our discussions. This podcast is dedicated to addressing crucial topics related to mental health, recovery, treatment options, latest research, and professional development for first responders. Some of the content we're going to discuss today during today's episode may be triggering or intense as we explore the challenges and the triumphs within the first responder community. We recognize that these discussions may evoke strong emotions or memories. If you need, if you or someone you know is struggling or need immediate support, we urge you to reach out to your agency's mental health resources or local peer support group. In times of crisis, you can always contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline by phone or by text at 988. Remember, you are not alone and help is available and help is out there. Today, we are privileged to have a guest speaker who brings a wealth of knowledge and experience to our ongoing mission of fostering resilience within the entire first responder community. Our guest today is Tanya Glenn. Tanya is the president of Tanya Glenn and Associates. She's a clinical practice in Central Texas that is focused on promoting resilience and providing critical care to first responders and veterans as a leading national clinician in the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder, otherwise known as PTSD. Dr. Glenn specializes in creating effective programs designed to mitigate traumatic stress and to assist patients with a return to normalcy as quickly as possible. As a licensed clinician, with 30 years of experience, Dr. Glenn deployed to Oklahoma City bombing in 1995, New York City in 2001, New Orleans for Hurricane Katrina in 2005, and in Dallas in 2016 for the aftermath of the attack on the Dallas Police Department and the Uvalde for the school shooter in 2022. Recognized nationally, Dr. Glenn's clients includes a host of uh, Texas and Arizona police, fire and EMS departments, federal law enforcement agencies, commercial aviation, and air medical programs. She's the clinical director for several peer support teams with her unique perspective on special operation competencies. Dr. Glenn is noted author in numerous books dealing with mental health, PTSD, first responders, military, and families. Additionally, she has been involved with several documentaries dealing directly with mental health trauma. If you do want to check her out, check out Tanya Glenn and Associates PA. 
at www.tanyaglenn.com. With a passion for advancing mental health strategies, recovery methods, and staying abreast for the latest research, our guest is at the forefront of supporting the well-being of those who serve on the front line. Join me in extending a warm welcome to Dr. Tanya Glenn as we embark on another insightful conversation to empower and uplift our first responders. Don't forget to subscribe to the Critical Conversations by Mind the Frontline to stay informed and connected with the conversations that matter most in the world of first responders. Without further ado, let's jump into today's episode and glean some valuable insights from our esteemed guests. Welcome, Tanya. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. So let's talk a little bit about today's topic and, and kind of why you picked it. So we are going to get into trauma response and PTSD mitigation. Um, why did you decide on that title? What kind of came up when you wanted to, you know, when you signed up to speak? What kind of spoke to you about that topic specifically? You know, well, so my, my favorite thing is, is dealing with trauma and I've dealt with so much PTSD over the years that uh, we've really rolled into getting in and mitigating and preventing and implementing care as quickly as possible. So my passion is like prevention. I love the word prevention. So does the fire service. <laughs> That's kind of a great word. And so um, just in the opportunity to share this and kind of coinciding with your story, I thought it would be just an awesome opportunity to join you and really discuss trauma and what we do now to mitigate and prevent it. I love it. Well, you know, for those who've been following me along and know my story, we all know that PTSD is kind of why I started the Mind the Frontline mission and everything around it. And it's all encompassing when you start getting into it. It's not one thing. I was listening to a couple of your YouTube episodes and I love some of the points that you brought up in that, you know, that, you know, it's not one thing that kind of addresses PTSD. It takes multiple resources, therapy, counseling, pharmacologically, uh, therapy, you know, there's a lot of things that kind of go behind that. But when we talk about what is trauma response, you know, what is the first thing that comes to your mind, Dr. Glenn? So I think that, you know, where we all start is, is in that moment of trauma. And one of the, the biggest things we do with all of our patients is we educate, like what happens in that moment, how what you see here, taste, touch, and smell gets captured by your frontal lobe because your brain can't process it like normal. It's too horrific. It's, it's just too awful. And at the same time, you're in, your, your training has kicked in, muscle memory has kicked in, survival has kicked in. And your caveman amygdala is firing away, doing everything it can to protect you. So everything, everything in the brain just stops functioning the way it's supposed to. And that's the moment that everything starts to change, right? And what we notice in ourselves is we can't shake it like a normal call or a normal event. You know, we're, we're not the same. We feel different. We smell different. We act different. And, and a lot of times when people's normal coping mechanisms don't work, people become afraid and, and they become really concerned and they don't want to say anything. And there's this like this, this moment of like, is it just me or is it like, is this normal? Am I crazy? And so everything changes psychologically and physiologically at that moment of trauma. And what we do is we really like to get in and start educating people very quickly on, Hey, this is normal. Here's what's happening to you. And here's what we do about it. And to get to that, that point of stabilization as quickly as possible is my favorite thing to do. And it, it is something that I feel like 
we try to understand as, as new clinicians, and maybe we could talk about that real quick, because if, if I was a new first responder, whether it be a, a new police officer, I'm a new EMT, I'm a new physician, new nurse, you know, when you think about trauma response, you know, what is the difference from what they think they might know before they came into their industry or profession versus what it really is when we finally get there? Yeah, I think that, you know, learning from a textbook about trauma or PTSD is one thing and um, experiencing is a whole different thing. Right. And so to me, the importance of education, like, you know, hitting people in their academy or in nursing school or, you know, in, in their very first the very first training process that they go through, whatever that is, and really helping people understand what what stress and trauma really looks like is, is imperative because what happens is you can read about it in a textbook, but if you can't recognize it in yourself because you, you don't really understand it truly, um, or somebody, somebody looks at you and doesn't understand what's going on with you either and just gets angry or frustrated with how you're behaving or not coping, um, it, it kind of leaves you isolated and it's a struggle. And so, so I think that a lot of people think that they understand what it is and then they get in it and then they they is simply just bewildering like how bad people feel after a trauma how poorly you sleep and how you know how unmotivated you are to work out and how quickly we start to abandon all the things that are good for us just in a in a simple act of trying to hunker down and get through a moment or get through a day and uh, it's it's awful like it is it is honestly one of the most isolating things even though you can have an event where everybody is traumatized by that event and everybody is experiencing the same thing. It really, truly, it just takes one person to kind of like break that barrier and say, you know what, this call was awful. This, this completely sucked. And everybody else would chime in. And then of course, all the shared experiences and thoughts and, and reactions are, are going to come out. But without that, people are just very much left on their own to deal with it. Yeah, I can at least speak for my experience when I was a new EMT out of high school, right? You know, I'm, I'm 19 years old, just barely um, have my EMT basic. I remember my very first call that I went on, you know, it was a diabetic code. And, you know, you read about it, you know, in the EMT textbook, for example, you know, here's stress, they kind of talk about you stress and, you know, all the different types of stress and how you, you know, eat well, sleep well, work out, take care of yourself. You know, you read all these things, you're like, okay, great. You know, that was an easy module to take and pass on the exam, right? But when you get out to the field and clinically start practicing, I remember my first exposure to that and I didn't know what to feel or even how to react. Like it was such a shocking thing that I don't think looking back, my brain just couldn't conceptualize what I had just experienced. It never experienced anything like that before as a 19 year old. I mean, I had a fairly decent, you know, mostly untraumatic, you know, childhood for the most part, but that first call was kind of my, uh, wow. Like I felt numb. I, I didn't know how to respond. I didn't know what to do. Like, you know, it's just, I, I equate it to, you know, you feel like you read about this digest on how to go camping. You know, you're playing your camp trip. You want to go do this hike from A to B. Uh, and you, so you think you conceptualize everything. You got to kind of visualize and you get there and it'd be like going to Grand Canyon for the first time. You're just like, you're, you're, it's so a mass. It's so big that you just, you're, you don't have the tools at the time to kind of conceptualize this and put this all into to real thought. 
you know, so when we talk about like trauma response, you know, I think about the four F's, you know, the fight, the flight, the freeze and the fawn. Um, and maybe we could kind of hit on some of that because I feel like by having these discussions, especially for those of you who might be new to your profession, new dispatchers, new physicians, new uh, active duty servicemen, um, this is important stuff that I wish I would have known before I got into the field because I really felt like I was not prepared. And obviously that continued with me throughout my career of the last 23 years and continues to add up. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I think that um, one of the best things that we've done at our practice is we've always educated and we always start with a fight or flight response and we take everything back to fight or flight and we link it through the types of stress and we normalize everything. We normalize, you know, how, why you, why you shake after a call, why you sometimes throw up after a call. You know, we talk about what happens to your prefrontal cortex shut down and all of that. And so, um, so and that's that's really the dialogue. That's the language of first responders and veterans is that fight or flight response. I joke that we don't we don't talk about the F word, which is feelings. <laughs> we use the other F word, but not feelings a lot. Yeah, the other F word. I get it. <laughs> I'm with you. Favorite word, but you know. <laughs> and so so really truly like understanding that physiological impact that that fight or flight response has on you and then how first responders and veterans have had just so many and how long they maintain this response over time and what happens with all the cortisol running around in your system and then eventually crossing your blood brain barrier and shrinking your hippocampus which is one of the causes of ptsd like the physiology of stress and that res traumatic response and then all of the the underlying you know things that happen throughout you know the a response to an event and then the aftermath it just makes sense and i think that when people hear that, they, they think, wow, you know what, this is normal. And people, everybody does this. Like this is what our brains and our bodies are designed to do. In an act of self-protection, some things go by the wayside. And, you know, and yeah. then you're just, then, then the key is to not have people who are left floundering. You want to have good education up front and good resources in place so that nobody slips through the cracks. And that to me is, is the most important thing that we can provide for, for our first responders and our veterans. I think, you know, when you, at least, you know, when you're new and you get into this, you know, you hit on some really good points, Tanya, you know, you, I looked to those around me in that initial call, right? I looked at those that were mentoring me, those that were in the senior position, senior medics, senior firefighters. Um, and I looked at them to how they were reacting. And for them, it was just kind of like another call, another walk in the park, you know, and um, I really had to look back in my career to, to maybe understand that they didn't have the tools at the time either on how to address stress and how to address um, trauma response. And, and a lot of people I feel like in, in public safety and first responders, you know, they're walking kind of like walking zombies sometimes, you know, they're just walking and doing the motions. They're disconnected because they're still trying to figure out how to process this. And all of that just overwhelms everything. I know, at least for me over the years, my cortisol levels have been extremely high and, and, and all of those things, the physiologic uh, changes that occur to a first responder um, is definitely a, a good topic for another episode, but it is something to be more and more aware of, you know, because if you can understand some of the physiology and the changes that occur and why they occur, you know, hopefully it gives the first responder the awareness on how they can actually hopefully mitigate some of that stuff and, and continue to process that every day. For me, it was, is I, I froze, you know, I, I, I didn't do the flight thing because that's typically 
what a, a personality doesn't want to do. A type A personality is going to look at those around them and go, this is my job. This is my mission. I'm going to do everything I can to achieve this. And they're going to continue to go at it, not knowing what's occurring because we just can't see it or feel it or understand it at the time. And, and then it kind of can manifest itself in days, hours, months, years, decades later, and it comes right. out. Um, what would you say, you know, when you look at first, uh, first responder, um, trauma response, is there really a difference between, um, someone in the general public that might experience a trauma response, say a car accident an assault, uh, you know, a stabbing, things like that versus what a first responder experiences in continual trauma responses. Do you see any difference between the general public and, and the first responder community? The, the biggest difference is, of course, you know, first responders are trained to deal with these events. And so they go into event after event after event. So their accumulation of trauma over time is much, much higher than the average citizen. Right. And I think that, you know, like, for example, that NFL football game where, you know, there was a cardiac arrest on the field and the game's canceled because, you know, the the population witnessed CPR in progress and to those paramedics on the field, that was just another day. I mean, it was a high publicity event, so it wasn't the average type of call. But when you when you look at the expectations we place on our first responders, there's that there's almost this sense of like, okay, well, we trained you to deal with this, so you should know how to deal with this. And that has been the problem. Because 31 years ago when I started, you know, the only the only coping mechanisms first responders had were suck it up or, you know, if you can't if you can't take the heat, get out of the kitchen, drink it off, um, you know, that kind of stuff, laugh, laugh about it. And so those those yeah. coping mechanisms were the only things that they had. And that's how, you know, all this trauma over time, this accumulation of event after event after event after call was just just rocking their worlds. And so. While citizens, the the population out there, they do have trauma and they can get post-traumatic stress disorder, our first responders are just taking in so much more like in volume and in an amount. And a lot of times, you know, if there's no time even to like process a call with your partner after a call because your shift is so busy and you're back to back to back and then you go home, well, where is where is all that offloading? Well, Sometimes it's with alcohol. Sometimes if you're lucky, you can kind of offload it on an understanding family member who, who can listen. Um, but a lot of times it's just internalized and, and then you're mm -hmm. back for your next shift, right? And you're back at it and you're back at it. For me, my personal experience, um, so I, I was an ER social worker for three years before I went to Oklahoma City after the bombing. And um, that was a lot of vicarious trauma for me and a moral injury of not being able to help uh, the, the more crew, which were National Guard nurses. I wasn't able to help them enough, I felt like. And when I came back, it was like six and a half months of struggle. Like I hated the ER, I hated, I hated the patients, I hated everything. And I was doing all the right things. I was working out harder, I was running more miles, I was avoiding alcohol. And one night, six and a half months after I got back, it took an ER nurse with ER nurse love to, to reset it for me. She walked past me and she said she, in, to my face, she said, ever since you got back from Oklahoma City, Tanya, you've been a complete asshole, you need help. And you know, and here I was wondering like, why am I, why am I drenched in sweat two hours into the shift? 
And why do I, why can I not find any compassion? And, you know, and what she said is basically dummy, go jump on the couch. And she was right. You know, and what I really needed to do was process the trauma. And so even people who, who know, who know this stuff, it's like, it's so hard to see it in yourself, but when your colleagues and your family members see it in you, that's usually a sign, like, just get help, just get help. It does. And it's, um, it's funny and interesting that you brought that up because I, I remember you mentioned like the Sentinel events and how they keep compounding and compounding and compounding. Um, one of my most memorable shifts, not for a good reason at all, but it was a 48 hour shift. But within that 48 hours, I had flown a neonate who had passed away. Um, it tried really hard. I had another traumatic code. I had two of those that day. And then we had the Arizona sweat lodge incident that happened down in Sedona. And I was the first aircraft on scene and ended up transporting two patients. In that 48 hours, I had seen a significant amount of trauma and death and uh, chaos, I would say. Um, but I can tell you that it was call after call. As soon as we got done with one call, we were restocked and going on the next one. So I remember that drive home from Flagstaff back down to Phoenix that day after I got off shift. And that's when it all hit me. It, it, it didn't come in one thing at a time. Um, and I think that's important to speak a little bit about, you know, when we get to the mitigation, you know, how to, how to debrief a call and the importance behind that, because I didn't unpack any of those calls until two days later, you know, I'm, I'm driving home and all of a sudden I'm just overwhelmed. I'm driving through Sedona. So I, I see the scene that, you know, was still there. They still have the tape. They still have all the you know, medical supply trash kind of on the ground, like, and that triggered the entire shift for me. And, and, and then you're in your head for a two hour drive, you know, home. Um, and that was just me. I know a lot of you individuals, people that are listening and our viewers out there, they have similar experiences where they're, they're stacking up call after call after call. And then they're, they're going home, you know, and when you get home, you either internalize it and just shut it down so you can just be the dad or the husband or uh the person that you want to be while you're off duty um but you don't ever really resolve that you don't really kind of go through and you know as you mentioned our, our frontal lobe our precordial uh, cortex it just it just flows right through there's no filter so it doesn't go to long-term memory it just kind of sits in limbo and we kind of put it away over here in a closet and we keep packing more things in that closet. And eventually, you know, it's like Pandora's box It's going to open, you know, it's just when, um, so looking at those things and being able to debrief and understand, you know, it's, it's, it's okay to not be okay. The more important thing that I learned, I think in my career, uh, when I would look at those senior to me, you know, I, I, I go back and I look at what we did, you know, we, yeah, we laughed it off. We made jokes, you know, crass humor, um, we used alcohol a lot. We would get off shift as a crew and go have breakfast beers. You know, that was, you know, that was the way we were, you know, and I got indoctrinated in that and that kind of fueled my own alcoholism because that's how I dealt with it. It was, Hey, I don't want to deal with this sadness, this thing. I don't even know how to deal with this. So, you know, kind of like ADHD or anxiety comes in. I'm like, I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to unpack this. So, Hey, I'm going to start drinking. I'm going to find other ways to, uh, uh, lean on to hopefully make it go away or make myself feel better. I remember I was working out every day, just like you had mentioned, I would working out every day. You know, I would have, you know, four to six days off to pay on the shift at that job. But, you know, as soon as I would get my workout done and I was done, it was still there. 
And so I didn't know what to do with it. So by 11 o'clock, I'm already popping the bottle of wine. I'm, I'm, you know, drinking beer, you know, by the time my wife got home at four o'clock, like I was inebriated. I was not a functional partner. I was, you know, I was chaos in a bottle, um, so to speak. And it, it really is hard when you, when you talk about the trauma response and how our bodies react to it. Absolutely. And those, those stories, I mean, that just, that breaks my heart to hear that. Right. So, so what we do, what we do, what we're doing now in the perfect world, according to Tanya, here's what happens. We start with education when you're a student, when you're a cadet, right? When you're a rookie, we start with education. When we get on a, a brand new department, we always start with education. So even some senior members may realize like, oh yeah, I think I need help because every slide was me. And so we start with education. We start with changing the culture and that starts with leadership. Um, the culture will change if chiefs and directors say things like, I have gotten help. I want you to get help. There are no repercussions. And when chiefs and directors do that, people will come for help. If a chief or director is like, hey, here's this resource in case you need it, you know, kind of the underlying implication is if you can't handle it, people won't come for help. And then what happens is people start to come in for help and there's no repercussions. You don't lose your job. You're not you're not on a desk. You're not on light duty, right? You, you continue to, to maintain your career, even if you do need to take a break from it or, you know, step off the truck for a bit or, you know, whatever, go on FMLA. And then mm-hmm. what happens is as people start to get help and it works, then they tell others and they challenge others and they push others. And then what we also do is in terms of um, creating that the culture change is we implement peer support programs. And then peer support really changes the culture in terms of of educating and normalizing and being there for their colleagues on their worst days. And then the clinical piece. So I always say the peer support teams, we work hand in hand. So they're like an extension of my practice. So when something bad happens, peer support is doing the initial crisis intervention, psychological first aid, early, you know, early mitigation. And then when people aren't bouncing back like normal, um, then peer support encourages them to come see us. What we've said at our practice is uh, we have a new standard. So we tell folks through every ounce of education we can give them, and I tell them this is the most important thing in my brief, is that if this call is not fading by seven days post-incident, so one week out, if it's not starting to fade, you know, the sight, smell, sounds, the nightmares, if those aren't fading, slowing down, moving to your long-term memory, take note. If at 14 weeks, this thing is not banked in your long-term memory, come in and get help. And what I always tell people is that this two-week window, this is my hard outer limit. I don't care if it's the day of your trauma or the very next day. If you know you're not okay, just come in, like reach out for help. And we like to jump in, like I said, very quickly, because at this point, everything we're doing is prevention because this is not PTSD yet. This is post-traumatic stress syndrome. And syndrome means something mm-hmm. bad happened and you're having a normal reaction to that trauma. It's not the D disorder. So we catch it at syndrome and get the call to process. We love using EMDR. And I will tell you that I have done EMDR now three times on people who were in the ICU. Like that's how quickly we got in and did EMDR standing over their hospital bed. Now these folks were not on narcotics, right? So they had really good awareness and they were, they were processing what happened to them, but that's how quickly we are now getting in after bad trauma because we just know that people are not going to be okay from some of these horrible events. And so we want to move in quickly and start to mitigate it. And that's, that's 
that's my world in a nutshell. That's it right there. Education, peer support, culture change, rapid, rapid clinical intervention and, uh, and getting people to bounce back. You, know, you said a lot of good things right there, Tanya. And I loved how you brought up organizational culture. If anybody has seen me talk or deliver some of my talks, I'm a huge proponent of organizational culture because obviously that is your brand. Um, that also sets, you know, so many uh, foundations for what your organization can do. Um, having that leadership support, having that leadership, you know, say, hey, it's okay to not be okay. We're gonna have your back. You know, we're, you're not gonna be punished, you know, and more importantly, showing that through action, I think really buys confidence in from the crews and, and from, you know, any of the, uh, uh, the employees of that agency. I've had several bad experiences where, you know, we, we utilize the EAP program. It's not so great. It really doesn't um, get you to that point where, you know, I love how you said that. That's a hard boundary for you. Seven days. If you're not feeling okay in seven days and that call's still sticking with you, that should be a red flag in the back of your head to say, I need to do something about this now before that PTSD or PTS, you know, post-traumatic stress syndrome, PTSS, sorry, I always get them kind of mixed up, goes on and continues and develops into PTSD. You know, we don't have those tools. We didn't have that wherewithal. So, you know, speaking to the education that you're trying to propose uh, and really a champion of, really, I would say, um, it's huge to have these educational programs to inform uh first responders on what they're going to experience. What is the difference between the syndrome and the disorder? So you can recognize it and then, Hey, how do we kind of mitigate this? And I think that's great to kind of move into the next subject and a good segue on, you know, how do we mitigate, you know, PTSD, you know, as a review of the literature on resiliency, I was looking at, um, following, you know, recovery, following traumatic events, identified by the following, um, factors of developing PTSD, meaning that those who engage in these did not endure the long-term suffering that I have gone through, you know, and I'm trying to correct, you know, I would really love to see the new people, the new employees coming into these, uh, prospective services, get that training earlier on, not later on, you know, and I know, you know, we got to start somewhere. So it's nice to say that, you know, when you say, hey, when we go into an agency, we start from scratch. Doesn't matter if you've been there for 10 years, you're there for six months, everybody's going to start at the ground level and we're going to build you up because I think having some of those tools is extremely important. Um, continuous contact with and, and support from important people in your life, um, disclosing the trauma to loved ones, identifying as a survivor as opposed to a victim. At least I know for me, I, I victimize everything. I'm the victim. I have PTSD. You should take care of, you know, and, and you kind of get in this kind of uh, uh, circle in your head and it becomes kind of uh, hard to manage some of those emotional responses and feelings and reactions. Um, no one can prevent the pain and suffering tied to the human experience. It's inescapable. Uh, we all experience loss, you know, and trauma to some proportions throughout our lives. Um, what we can prevent, however, I feel like is the suffering, uh, on top of pain, right? You know, I'm already suffering. I don't need to cause myself more pain. Um, I kind of describe this when I talk to some of my students as, you know, you know, stubbing your toe and then being frustrated that you stub your toe, that you punch yourself in the face. You know, I stub my toe. I'm frustrated that I do it. Doesn't mean I need to go injure myself even further. Right. Uh, what would you kind of say? Like, what, what are your tools, um, or how would you kind of uh, uh, bring to you know from mind 
you know, a good, you know, mitigation routine or how can we be mitigating things so it doesn't turn into PTSD and we can hold it at a syndrome and recover from that quicker, faster and build that resiliency. Yeah. So to me, the foundation of resiliency, we start, um, we have a lot of patients who absolutely need to start at the very, the very base of resiliency, which is hydration, nutrition, rest, and exercise. And those things are so important. I mean, you know, paramedics are great at telling their patients to do these things, but they're not so good at doing them themselves. And so we really start with that, that foundation, hydration, nutrition, rest, and exercise. And then we build on your family, your faith, your friends, and your hobbies. So starting with a healthy, resilient person, when you expose them to trauma, and I can say this with absolute certainty at 31 years of doing this, that when you take a resilient person and you put them in the butt kicking call of a lifetime, their resilience is going to slide to lower, but then they're going to rally back. But if you have a person and their, their mm. resilience is low at the point of impact, they're just off the charts. So we start with that. And then we implement early intervention by good peer support teams, giving people the avenue to just vent and process and talk through initially, you know, their, their reactions and then subsequent days, the following days to see how they're doing, to make sure that they're either tracking well and improving or not. And then what we do is we get in and we, we, uh, we start EMDR as quickly as, as, as we can with folks. Um, if you can tell me your story without dissociating, even if you cry the whole way through, you are ready for EMDR. And so we we jump in with the EMDR very quickly, and then sometimes if we if we have the opportunity, we will tag it on with progressive desensitization. So we may, for example, if it's an air medical event, we may do EMDR and then get back in the helicopter with our patient and go for a flight, or we may go visit the scene where it happened, or it's an officer involved shooting. So we do EMDR and then we head to the range, and so we do that mm -hmm. as as quickly as possible to make sure that people feel validated, normalized, they have the chance to process and they have the ability to, to bounce back. Cause you're right. Once you get stuck in that, like that victim mindset and your life is falling apart, it's like this vicious cycle. And, you know, and, and by that point, it's a little bit of a dumpster fire. Your life is like a dumpster fire. And so we want to prevent mm -hmm. that dumpster fire from ever really starting. Yeah. I felt like my life was total chaos. You know, I was fueling it with alcohol. Mm -hmm. I didn't, you know, I, I call it a fog, you know, at least for me, you know, you, um, you know, when we were flying in air medical, you know, one of the things that we talk about with night vision goggles is it allows you to see through some of the fog a little bit. So you get yourself a little bit further in than you would have unaided. Um, this, I kind of relate to that same concept, you know, at least for me here, you know, it's, uh, I kind of knew there was stuff going on. I, I didn't know how bad it was. I didn't realize, you know, you, you always tell yourself like, oh, I got this. The next day while you're hungover, you're like, oh, I'm going to quit drinking. I'm going to keep going back, you know, things like that. Um, but I really struggled to realize like how far down uh, the hole I had gone, I guess. Uh, and, and that's probably, I, I hear that common um, from a lot of first responders when they talk about uh, where they're at or when they hit the crisis point or they reach out to me. It's really they're at that point. They finally kind of took off their MVGs and they realize like, I don't know where I'm at anymore. I, I don't even know which direction to go. And so they just try to go through the same kind of motions that got them there. And we know through research and, and just seeing numbers and statistics that yeah, it's it's in a mindset that keeps kind of spiraling down and down and down until 
um, either they reach out, hopefully, and get that help and start going down that path of recovery and, and EMDR and all of that stuff that is involved in that. Um, or we see them go the other direction. And unfortunately, like, you know, last year alone, I, I lost 12 people that I knew directly to suicide in first responders. You know, it's more than I've ever experienced in my entire career in one year of loss. And, and I keep going back, like, hey, we got these tools, we got all these awareness campaigns, we got all this stuff is going on, but the suicide rates are still climbing. The trauma is still out there. You know, I do see, you know, maybe uh, some of the micro stresses like the pandemic that added on top of that burden and really kind of, uh, you know, I think accelerated some people because like you mentioned, Tanya, you know, for those who have practiced resiliency training, maybe before they got to the industry, maybe through their upbringing, um, just their, their undergrad, whatever it might be, uh, I feel like they have really good tools. And yes, while they might have a bad day, they're able to bounce back from that bad day. Um, I feel like when I got into the profession, I didn't have any resilience training. I had no idea what that meant. I had no idea what a mission, you know, emotional uh, uh, survivability, emotional trauma. I, I had no idea what those concepts were. And so for me, when I got kicked, I was already on the bottom. I, I was already kind of like, where do I go from here? Um, and then you just look at what's going on. And so, you know, how do those around you at the time cope with stress, trauma, things like that? And we end up kind of uh, emulating their responses or their attitudes just because we don't know what else to grab onto. Um, at least that was my experience. Uh, I feel like um, being able to share, at least for me, by doing you know the Critical Conversations podcast, when I go out and speak, it, it allows me to communicate and, and really uh, heal myself because I'm, I'm, I'm doing my own recovery in that. Uh, but I think mitigation of, you know, trauma mitigation of PTSD, at least for me now, it's like a daily routine that I have. And I have to do that because it's just like you mentioned, you know, if I'm going to work out and keep my body straight and, and healthy, I'm going to eat right. I still need to take care of the emotional component and I got to take care of me. Um, and so I'd like to hear just kind of a little bit of, you know, what you might consider would be a, you know, a good starting routine for someone that is looking to help mitigate PTSD and, and prevent the, the syndrome from turning into something a little bit more serious. Yeah. So I, I always, um, people who have, who, who have pretty poor resilience, I like tangible goals. Like I like, I like homework that they can, that they can actually do. That's not sort of like fluffy. So I will ask people this week, can you add eight ounces of water to your day every day? Can you add a hundred steps on that Fitbit? And can you add 30 minutes of sleep at night? And then next week, it'll be 16 ounces of water a day, 200 steps on that Fitbit and an hour of sleep at night. So like the, the tangible things, right? And then, of course, we want people to ideally, and we are seeing this, with, which is pretty cool with some of our younger first responders, because we go do the education, a lot of them will come in and get established here as a patient and they kind of work on their resilience and then they get out to the field and they have their first bad call and they come in and see us, right? And then maybe they have some family issues and they come see us. And so what we want is for people to have an established ongoing relationship that like if I have, I have patients, I know like as soon as something happens, I'll send them a text, checking on you, thinking about you. 
and you know and it's like yep can you get me in tomorrow on it right we have that kind of that kind of relationship um my upcoming book is called warrior healer and all of the people who who submitted in this book have have been to the practice have seen me through tough times but also like their charts are open i haven't closed them out because through their whole careers they come back in and jump on the couch during tough times or they'll come back in after a really really nasty call and we'll do emdr on it right and so it to me it's it's about how you take care of your your brain your body your soul your spirit and it is um it is through the physical acts of good self-care but it's also through having you know established good good contacts with your peer support program and a, and a really good therapist that you can just you can kind of wax and wane you you leave for a while you come back for a while and and that's okay we really want people to do that it is it's kind of funny though when the new ones come in and they're like yeah i just want to work on my resilience and get ready for what's ahead i'm like what because <laughs> because i'm used to like you know i've been doing this for 30 years and i'm i'm a dumpster fire <laughs> so it's yeah it's yeah, you're, really nice. you're waiting for them to come to you after everything has yeah. occurred not before but yeah. that just yeah. shows you like the change the small changes that are occurring within our industry right now amongst first responders that we need to be aware of it's it change does not happen overnight organizational right. change within our professions when it comes to public safety and first responders does not change overnight you know we are uh, a lot of these professions are rooted in culture and tradition and this is the way we've always done it you know that's a very famous term that i like i think a lot of people like to throw out but it's true you know uh, it takes time changing culture is probably one of the hardest things uh someone will ever be able to you know have done because it takes so much you know that's it's who we are it's how we respond to things it's how we were raised you know all these things that we really don't take into account um really add up and come together and so yeah at least for me i like how you mentioned it you know it's 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 not only mental you know resiliency i need to build it's emotional resiliency spiritual resiliency and at least for me, I, I have to address all three of those every day, you know, starting up with just waking up and feeling, you know, gratitude, you know, writing three 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 things down that I'm thankful for today. Um, that goes into my daily reading and, and a little bit of meditation, getting my workout in and really just trying to set my day up and, and understanding, you know, that if I'm off, this too shall pass. I'm off right now. I don't need to react to it. I just need to understand and really try to identify what is causing where, where is that trigger coming from and then from there i can slowly start maybe working through it sometimes i'm like hey i, I can't deal with this today I, my, my cup is full and i just need and i know that and i can go hey i'm gonna put this away over here i'm gonna come back to it but it's in staging right and there's days where i'm like yeah i can attack that i can deep dive into it you know maybe it's a call maybe it's a previous experience you know whatever that is that's going on i'm able to look at but I can tell you, I didn't get these tools overnight, Tanya. It has taken years and, and constant work to get to where I'm at. I'm, I'm 40 now. I didn't have any of these tools before I was 38. And so I feel like there's a lot of uh, similar individuals out there like me. Um, and then there's obviously the new age people that are coming in from the bottom that are, they are, they, they're, they are the new generation. They really want to make sure that they have longevity in their career, that they are taking care of themselves and that the, their self-care is important. I love seeing that. And so you are seeing like the shift in the different, you know, professional industry cultures occurring. Absolutely. Absolutely. The, the shift is amazing. And I will tell you my first, my very first customer, my very first contract, 
uh, is was with Austin Travis County EMS in 1996. I fought for three years to get it. And I did it for free for three years so they would award it. And it's amazing to watch this agency and how much the culture has changed um, over time. One of my one of my patients told me that um, it was a busy night and they were all in in the EMS writing room at one of the hospitals. And the room's packed and a paramedic walked by and he kind of leaned into the door and he said, hey, I have a question. And everybody looked at him and they're like, yeah, go ahead. And he said, does EMDR really work? And my patient told me that the entire room of paramedics said, yes, go do it. And so to me, that's, that's, but that's 31 years. So <laughs> it's, you know, it takes a while, but, but once it, once the culture changes, it's amazing. And, and I heard that story, by the way, from Ginger Locke. She had told yeah. me about how you'd come into Austin, Travis County and basically said, no, you guys need this. I'm going to do it for free. And you proved the concept, you mm -hmm. know, and that's that that speaks volumes to who you are, your character and what you're doing in your advocacy for mental health and first responders uh, throughout all the professions. You know, we need people like you leading the way, you know, and it's really cool to see that you threw this in in 96 and you know, you are seeing the changes because that, that gives me hope, right? Because I've gone through my own experiences and, and as we see these changes, you know, I also understand that my experiences are my experiences only, and that doesn't happen at every organization, you know, it's unfortunately probably not the organizations that valued mental health and awareness, emotional resiliency, spiritual resiliency, all of that, um, at the forefront. And so I feel like, you know, through, you know, being aware of what, you know, the trauma response is. If I understand that I'm in that response mode, I'm hoping that that now gives me the next step, which is, okay, I need to go get help. I loved how you brought up like having a counselor. If there's anything I could suggest to any of the viewers watching or listening to the show today is if you don't have a counselor, I highly encourage you go out and start that search. There will come a time where you're gonna need that and what I have heard and what I have found in my own personal experience is it takes a couple of counselors before you find the one that best connects and fits for you. The other thing is, is it takes time to get in to see these individuals. Um, I've heard waits anywhere from two weeks to four months to get in and see someone. And obviously if you have that uh, relationship with your counselor, or your therapist, like you mentioned, Tanya, hey, I can call up my counselor and say, hey, I am in crisis. Can you fit me in today or the next available? And they will do everything they can to get you in. But you have to have that relationship. You have to have that line of communication open beforehand. I would definitely encourage you not to wait until you need to pull that ripcord uh, because it takes time for that ripcord to kind of go into effect and start working. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. There's a, it does, you know, First responder counselors, it's a it's a rare breed um, and there's not many, many people who do this well. Uh, first responders are a very different population. Um, it, it's kind of become a kind of a cool thing to do in the counseling world is to work with first responders. But that doesn't mean that most counselors are ready for what what you're going to bring. So it does take I always say it's like it's like test driving a new car, car. You might have to test drive a few before you find the right one. And so definitely, yes, now at a point in your life where maybe you don't necessarily need it because you're not in a crisis. Now's the time to find that person. 
Yeah. If you feel comfortable, reach out to your fellow peers and see who they're using. You know, using a vetted counselor, someone that someone else has used, I have found the most success with. That counselor may or may not work, but it gets me a little bit closer to my end goal. And I would also say, you know, remain patient. This is a process. And that's why if you start it now and it's there when you need it, great. But if it's uh, you need it and it's not there, I can tell you from personal experience, it, it definitely is a detriment to uh, that trauma response that we just talked about because you're not able to work through this by yourself. I can, <laughs> I can honestly tell all of our viewers listening that if you guys think you can tackle this by yourself without any help, it'll take you. It'll definitely take you. It's just a matter of time and when. Um, so please don't allow that to build up. Please, you know, be proactive, you know, be like this, you know, these younger generations that are coming out, you know, and advocating for themselves and looking for those resources. Um, Dr. Glenn, are there any resources that you would like to share real quick um, to any of our viewers or listeners? Uh, you know, on mental resiliency, how I can mitigate this, or just on trauma response, what would be some good resources that you would uh, recommend for our viewers? Uh, well, there's a really good book called The Body Keeps a Score, and that's about what trauma does to you. Um, really great book that that is, goes very in depth in terms of the physiology of trauma. That's, that's one of my favorites. Um, there are a lot of really good resilience books out there. I think that the thing about a resilience book is, you know, if you kind of peruse them, if you kind of look at the descriptions on Amazon or wherever you may be buying a book, kind of whatever like language appeals to you is the one you want to buy. Cause there's some really great ones written by therapists and there's some really great ones written by Navy SEALs. And, but it's your, it's your, your just kind of the, the vibe you're looking for. That's what I would recommend in terms of, of those resilience books. Um, and then of course, you know, I've, I've written a few, <laughs> they're all on Amazon or, you know, uh, Com. And so there, you know, I just, I write very, um, I write very direct to the point, uh, no fluff books because first responders don't have a lot of time to read and they don't really care about like, you know, the history of whatever crisis intervention, that's not their, that's not their thing. It's, it's more like, how do I get help now? And what do I do? And, you know, and those kinds of things. So those are give really me the cool. information now as <laughs> yes. little as words possible. <laughs> well, you know, you, you mentioned some really good resources right there. You know, the body keeps score. I love that book. I have another episode coming up that we kind of deep dive into that. I, I felt like that book really helped me understand my trauma um, mm -hmm. and past generational trauma. And just, you know, it gave me uh, a playbook to understand trauma response. I, it really did. Like it re I really understood trauma for the first time. And I'd been an advocate for mental health for five years up until I kind of read this book. And so it really was a good changer. I've read two year earlier ones and I, and I definitely would recommend those as well to our viewers and listeners. Um, like she said, go to Barnes and Noble or amazon.com and check out Dr. Tanya Glenn. Uh, check out the books that see what speaks best to you. You know, I've, I've done professional development and he, uh, Jocko Wilnick, you know, there's, there's so many different resources out there. David Goggins, uh, you know, you know, very intense, but it, it gave me the tools that I needed. And just understand, you know, these are all tools. What works for one individual may not work for you. So, you know, take those tools, take those resources, you know, try them out. Like I would tell my, uh, my students, you know, it's always nice to try something out and see if it works for you. If it does great, hold it on, incorporate it in your routine. If it doesn't, okay, well, you've tried something, you've exposed it, but you're still working on yourself. That's, that's the important part to recognize. Even if you read a, read a resource that you really didn't enjoy, you're still working on yourself. You got something out of that. I feel like. So, um, any final thoughts, uh, Tanya on today's episode, you know, when it comes to trauma response 
or mitigating PTSD? And also, how can our viewers or listeners find you? My final thought, one thing I always like to say is that I just, I hope that if a listener is is struggling, I just want to tell them, just please, please don't give up hope. Like there's, there's so much good help out there. We've advanced, you know, interventions so much, so much more, and things are so much better than they used to be in terms of mental health and, and protocol. And, and please, please just don't give, don't give up, don't give up hope. Um, I, I just, I hate to see people struggle. I hate to see people suffer. I hate to hear about suicides. And so, you know, whatever it is, just reach out because there is somebody who can help you. Um, that's that's my final thought. Um, how to reach me, my website is www.tania, and then Glenn with two Ns.com. That has um, it links to the documentaries, uh, links to the books, um, everything, everything. Uh, well, I'm out there and I'm on social media, of course. Um, so I'm on the book of faces and on Instagram. So <laughs> you can find me if you, if you just Google my name. Yeah. You're one of those individuals. I think you've, you know, after 31 years, you've kind of reached that status where if you just Google Tanya Glenn, you'll, you'll, she'll probably be the first Tanya Glenn that pops up. And I would definitely speak to her website and the resources that they have on there and the courses and education that they provide. Also, you can check her out on uh, YouTube. I saw some of your uh, videos this morning and yesterday. I felt like they were really good. Um, you provide really good resources that are small, short, um, uh, palatable, you know, pieces of information, right? Short, sweet to the point. Um, you had your guest Dan Cohen with, uh, uh, Williamson County, uh, on. And then, so, you know, I felt like there are some really good resources. So, you know, YouTube, Google, go to her website, check her out, um, give her a lot of love. And, you know, I just want to kind of close it out a little bit. Tanya, thank you so much for coming on. I really, really appreciate you sharing your thoughts, um, on, you know, just trauma response and, and how to mitigate PTSD, because I feel like now more than ever, you know, we have the change that is occurring within our industries that we can really be champions of things like this. Uh, when we talk about, um, you know, first responder response to trauma, just know you're never alone. Please don't give up, you know, reach out. It's one of the hardest things to do when you're suffering and in that fog, I can speak to that from my own suicide attempts. You know, please reach out to somebody. All it takes is a text, you know, and it could be green, it could be help, it could be yellow. It doesn't have to say, hey, I'm falling apart. Um, and for those of you also listening, I'd recommend, you know, every day I try to do a buddy check to three people and not that they're going through anything or not. I just like to say hi, check in and connect because it makes them feel valued and like they have a purpose. So there are things that we can do to help uh, keep numbers and turn around and smash the stigma. I want to say, uh, as we wrap up another enlightening episode of Critical Conversations by Mind the Frontline, we want to extend our heartfelt gratitude to Tanya uh, and her invaluable insights on trauma response and PTSD mitigation. The depth of their knowledge and her knowledge when it comes to this topic it truly cannot be understated uh, when you talk about her mission and promoting first responder mental health and wellness and recovery. Uh, to our dedicated listeners, thank you for joining us on this critical journey. Remember, our vodcast is a steadfast resource for police, fire, EMS, allied health workers, dispatchers, air medical, military personnel, and your families. Your support makes the impact on these conversations resonate even further than I can. 
If you found today's discussion enlightening and you want to stay connected with our ongoing mission, please be sure to subscribe to Critical Conversations by Mind the Frontline. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and on our resource page at www.mindthefrontline.org. Uh, your subscription ensures that you never miss an episode, and it's a powerful way to show your commitment to fostering resilience within the entire first responder community. For more information and for resources, both national and state, and to see the resources that we talk about today, go to Mind the Frontline's resource page at www.mindthefrontline.org forward slash resource. Together, let's continue these critical conversations and build a stronger, more resilient first responder family. Thank you for being a part of Critical Conversations by Mind the Frontline. Until next time, take care, stay strong, and mind the frontline.